You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. So good, so good. Jody is such a gift to our church. She is back there right now with our kids team serving those 88-plus kids that regularly uh, worship here, and she's also in here exhorting us uh, to use our gifts and to build up the body of Christ. So, a uh, really good reminder there. Uh, if that spoke to you or if any way that you feel that uh, God is leading you to get engaged in that way, don't hesitate to stop by the table on the way out today or to reach out and grab Do- Jody. We'd love to help you begin to make an impact in the next generation here at this church. Okay, well, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to grab your Bible, open it up. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Meet me there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1 this morning. And if you're a guest with us, uh, we are, we've been studying uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Um, this letter is what's called an occasional letter. There's a, Paul is writing to, to, um, to, to answer specific questions and to give specific instructions to what was going on with the church in Corinth. And if I had to sum it up, I would maybe sum it up briefly like this. Here's what's happening. Th- those who have been called out of darkness into the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, the church in First century Corinth, the church was starting to look more like the city of Corinth and less like the person of Christ. And so Paul is writing to them to correct them and to instruct them to make sure that, they, uh, that there's a proper renovation in their hearts and in their fellowship as a community. And this text that we have this morning, chapter 10, verse 23 through 11.1, is the end of this long discourse that Paul has been on around the topic of eating meat worship to idols. And I know what you might be thinking if you're new with us, what in the world? (laughs) Um, Why do we need instruction about eating meat that has been worshiped to idols? That doesn't sound very relevant to my life. Well, there are still brothers and sisters in Christ in certain parts of the world today that, that, that live in a world where there is pagan idolatry all around them, real pagan temples and pagan practices. And so it is relevant, but I think that what, what we've seen over the last few weeks is that if we zoom out a bit on this section of text, that Paul is really uh, calling us to consider a question, and the question is this. How are we, as followers of Jesus, so if you are a committed follower of Christ, how are we to live in or interact with a pagan world? How do we live in a secular society as followers of Jesus? How do we interact, right? I mean, Jesus has called us to be in the world, but not of the world, but that's difficult. How do we do that? Especially in first century Corinth, idolatry was everywhere. We've talked about this. There were temples to all of the different Greek gods and goddesses. And it was, maybe think of it this way, in a similar way that you and I today, uh, we worship with our time and money. What we really love and live for, we give our time and our money to. Well, in first century Corinth, the currency of worship was eating and drinking. And so this was happening where people would go to these festivals or um, even these dining uh, halls, dining rooms, restaurants that were in these temple courts. Um, the, The food, the meat that was offered to idols would be served there. And then even sometimes that meat would trickle its way down into the markets. So imagine being a Christian and going to HEB and and knowing that there was a chance that the, the, the meat that you bought may or may not be idol meat. What do we do? How do we navigate this kind of thing? And I want you to know that this is certainly relevant for us. We, like the Corinthians, live in a secularizing culture. 
don't we? We find ourselves more and more, as we seek to be, as we just sung earlier, God's faithful people, we find ourselves more and more bumping up into these hot spots or these gray zone areas where what is good and right for us as Christians or what we believe as Christians might be in conflict with the things that's wrong with our culture. Let me give you a few examples of these. For example, we live in a culture that abuses alcohol. This is common in our culture to abuse alcohol. I wish this weren't the case. I wish that people could, if their conscience would allow them, could enjoy a glass of wine to the glory of God and not drink too much. You know, I wish that this were the case, but it's not. And so we have to think about this. This is a hot spot, a gray zone area for us as Christians. Is it wise to drink alcohol? If your conscience allows you, how do you navigate the different kind of public settings? Is it okay to drink here or there? What about the people that I'm around? What about other Christians that struggle with addiction? How do we navigate this, right? It's a hot spot. It's a gray zone area as we seek to be faithful to Jesus in a secular culture. We also live in a culture that promotes lies and confusion around gender and sexuality. I wish this weren't the case, but it is. And so it puts us in situations where we have to say things like, should I or should I not go to that wedding of a family member? Should I or should I not go to that wedding of a friend? How do we navigate this when we find ourselves in these hot spots? Should I or should I not send my kid to this kind of school? How do we navigate these things? One more. I'll give you a little PTSD here. When a novel virus is spreading across the world and all sectors of society are confused and conflicted, what do we do? Do we wear the mask or do we not wear the mask? How long should we wear the mask? Do you see what I'm talking about here? We find ourselves in these gray zones or in these hot spots. And Paul has been writing from chapter 8, verse 1, to shepherd and coach the Corinthian believers how to navigate this. And we've walked through it, haven't we? He's taught us about the Christian conscience and how we need to let the Holy Spirit speak to us through our conscience. He's warned us about our susceptibility to temptation. So though we should be in the world, we need to be careful as we're in the world that we don't get pulled into temptation. He's warned us about the danger of idolatry. He said, don't flirt with idolatry. You better not be in those temples, celebrating those festivals in those temples. There's real demonic power behind idolatry. He's been coaching us and shepherding us through this. And now he's going to land the plane and he's going to give us a practical grid. If you're taking notes... This is what our text is today. It's a practical grid how we, for how we live faithfully as God's people in a secular pagan world. And here's what he's going to tell us. He's going to tell us that it is the glory of God and it is the good of our neighbors that must be our motivation at all times and in all things. Let me pray for us and we'll get back into the text. God, we thank you for this space, this sacred space to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ, to open your word, to sing your praises, to be reminded of our purpose and our mission. And we pray now, Lord, we ask humbly, I ask humbly as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, you would convict us where we need to be convicted in your kindness, lead us to repentance where we need to repent. Would you build us up and instruct us in truth that we might live the abundant life that you've called us to. We say simply to you, Lord, we want you here this morning. Would you speak to us through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. 
chapter 10, verse 23, Paul gives us the first principle that guides our grid. He says, all things are lawful. Look back at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He's speaking, by the way, to both the legalistic person and the licentious person. Because here's what, here's what happens as we try and follow Jesus in a, in a secular world is that there's kind of two, two paths, two kinds of people, two propensities. We can end up in a ditch on the other side. In, the, in other words, we can end up over here where we know that we're in a secular world and that we're different. We're called out by God and we can start to make rules and become legalist. Or we can end up on this ditch over here and become licentious and we can say, actually, I'm free in Christ. I have liberties um, uh, that my, I get to express my freedom in Christ and we can end up looking too much like the culture. Uh, I have two sons. One is a legalist and one is licentious. And it's pretty fun in our household to watch one make rules and keep rules and the other one always bending rules. Uh, I won't say breaking rules, but sometimes breaking rules. Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up, brothers and sisters. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul gives us a, a first principle in the Christian life. Listen, this is kindergarten for Christianity. This is discipleship 101. Because of Jesus Christ, in all of our actions, and all of our interactions, we ought to seek putting others before ourselves. We ought to seek to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ before seeking our own good. We ought to be seeking in all situations to, be, to live as a witness of Christ rather than seeking our own good, our own pleasure. Paul says, life for the Christian is not about you. It's not about your preferences. It's not about your opinions. It's not primarily about your own pleasure. Life is about Jesus Christ, his glory, and his mission. Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 2. I know many of you are familiar with this text. He says in Philippians chapter 2, Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he gives us the why behind the command. He says your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus. Right? I mean, we see this way of life. We see this principle, not seeking our own good first, but seeking the good of others. We see this so clearly, like in 4K definition in the gospel of Jesus Christ, don't we? Don't we see it in Jesus? We see Jesus seeking not his own good, but the good of the world and the life that he lives, and the death that he dies, and the suffering on our behalf. We, we see this, and Paul is reminding us, you are now Christians, little Christs. You, you are being conformed into the image of your Savior and your Lord. Live like him, not seeking your own good. Now, as we follow Jesus in a secular world, I think that this causes us to consider a couple things. First, we need to acknowledge how countercultural it is to not seek your own good, but to seek the good of others. Can we just acknowledge that? Like, that is so backwards in our world today. Our world has conditioned us and is conditioning people to look out for numero uno at all times. In other words, if we, ha we could sum up the discipleship narrative of our culture in a Burger King commercial. Are you ready? BK, have it your way, you rule. Do you know this commercial? Am I the only one? Okay, thank you. Yeah. 
This is so backwards to the way of Jesus. This is our culture. Have it your way, man. Seek your own good. You rule. Life is about you, and you are in the driver's seat of your own life. This is the mantra of the world. And I want you to know that this runs deep. It's not just a narrative and culture. It's not just the air that we breathe in our culture, but it is a part of our sinful nature. It's a reality of our sinful nature to seek self, to put self before God and before others. But Paul is reminding us when we encounter Jesus Christ, if you've encountered Jesus Christ, something happens in your heart that begins to turn you around from this way of thinking and living. When we see God coming for us in Jesus, when we see Jesus at his own expense, loving us and seeking us and sacrificing for us and suffering in our stead, it begins to change things for Christians. When we see Jesus calling us out of the dead-in way of selfish living, Jesus saying, bidding us, come and die, take up your cross and follow me that you might truly live, it begins to change our hearts, which ought to then change our lives from the inside out. This is what grace does. And so we need to acknowledge that the way of Jesus is swimming against the current of life in this world. The second thing that we need to acknowledge as we think about this principle, this grid, putting others before ourselves, living for the good of others, not seeking our own good, is that this kind of life, this kind of cross-shaped life, gospel-centered life, requires real intentionality. It doesn't just happen. It requires intentionality. It requires faithful focus, or what some people call spiritual sweat in our life, to live this way, to live the, a life that's shaped by the cross. It requires that we apply the gospel to our life, not just theoretically, not just thinking about what Jesus has done for us as a, a ticket to heaven one day, but applying it to the ground level of our everyday life. This is where Paul is pointing us as he's giving us this grid. He's reminding us it requires active faith each day, not passive faith. In other words, I think there are many of us, myself included, that wake up in the morning and, are, and tend to go through each day on, on, on autopilot a bit. We're not super mindful about our everyday actions and interactions. And if we're not mindful of our everyday actions and interactions, what will take the wheel? Will Jesus take the wheel? <laughs> Probably not. It will be self will take the wheel. And so it requires intentionality to put on the mind of Christ, as Paul instructs us elsewhere. It will take intentionality to consider others more significant than ourselves, to think about our actions and interactions and apply this grid to each day. Am I living for the good of neighbor and the glory of God in all that I say and all that I do? It also requires that we don't compartmentalize our life. Man, this is so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy to compartmentalize our life and think about, you know, the Christian stuff is over here and that's really where I show up and activate my faith and give God my attention and my affection. And then all the other stuff over here is just everyday life. It's easy for us to compartmentalize our life. But Paul is calling us to view our everyday life, our actions and our interactions first and foremost, as witnesses to other people. We are witnesses of the gospel. We are witnesses of God's self-sacrificing love so that we might be saved, so that others might know the love, the grace, the truth of Jesus Christ. He's reminding us that we are ambassadors in all that we say and do. This is 
the first part of the grid that we must have if we're going to live faithfully for Jesus in a secular world, not seeking our own good. This is part one. So as we think about the wedding, (laughs) will I go to that thing or will I not go to that thing? How do I show up to that thing? So we think about participation with our Christian liberty of alcohol. Will I drink? Will I not drink? Why? Why not? So we think about maybe what school we'll go to or what job I'll take. As we live in a Christian, in a secular society as a Christian, we must first think about not seeking our own good. It's not about me, but building up, Paul says. And then he gives us a second principle down in verse 31. He's going to give us the other side of the coin. So our everyday life is about witness and then viewing our everyday life as worship. Look at verse 31 through 33. Paul says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church. In other words, don't become a stumbling block to other people, whether Jews, Greeks, Christians, non-Christians, people in the church. Don't become a stumbling block. Think about them before you think about yourself. Verse 33, he says, Just as I try to please everyone, just as I try and consider everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, but that of many, that they may be saved. What is he doing here? He's pulling it together, principle one and principle two. The good of neighbor, the glory of God. Both sides of the coin. Life, an everyday life of witness and an everyday life of worship. He reminds us here uh, the goal of our life together as the church. Our goal as the church is not just to show up and check some spiritual boxes on a Sunday, kind of serve when there needs to be people that serve and, and, and go through the religious hoops and then get back to ordinary life. He says, no, in everything that we do as the church, everything is about worship and witness. The church has two functions. We are a worshiping community and we are a witnessing community. Paul says, God has saved us by grace through faith in his son. He's brought us into fellowship with the Father, that that the Father now might work in us and through us in the world. And so he says, in all that you do, it's about witness and it's about worship. It's about glorifying God in all that we do. What What does this look like? What does it mean to live a life that glorifies God in all that we do? Well, first... It means that everyday, ordinary life is a sanctuary. Your everyday, just imagine for a minute, your ordinary life. Your Saturday afternoon, your Monday morning commute, your meetings throughout the week. If you're a student walking the hallway of your school, your ordinary life, Paul is saying, for the Christian is a sanctuary. He's telling us worship isn't just a Sunday morning activity. It's an all-of-life activity. I want you to hear, please hear this, hear how empowering this is. Hear the Bible telling you right now, your life matters. All of it. It matters to Jesus. And I know that there are some of you this morning that probably feel like that's not true. That, That my life doesn't matter. It actually feels pretty meaningless. My life feels a bit railroaded by my circumstances. My life feels a bit um, um, underwhelming. Maybe the stay-at-home mom life or the life of of some of you that are caring for elderly and aging parents. The, the, The life that's stuck in a starter job and feels like it just can't move on from that. 
The Bible is telling you your life is a sanctuary unto the God of all grace and mercy. It matters. And in all things, no matter what you do, there's dignity and there's purpose. And God can be honored and God can be glorified. It also means that all things in creation, when surrendered to the lordship of Jesus, uh, become a mode and a means of worship. You remember what we said last week about idolatry? If you were here, we talked about idolatry. And we said that idolatry uh, is worshiping the creation over the creator, reaching for the creation, something in the created world to satisfy, meet a longing or a seeking that only Jesus Christ can satisfy. And we can make an idol out of anything. We can make an idol out of, out of morning coffee. <laughs> I've, I, I gotta have my morning coffee. I can't live without it. It is my only hope in life and death. We can make an idol out of food. We can make an idol out of drink, food and drink. You can fill in your favorite food and drink. See, the legalists just want to talk about alcohol and other things. But you can fill in any food and drink, whether it be soda or chocolate or candy or, or alcohol. And we can run to that as comfort. It is the thing that comforts me after a lot. We can make an idol out of anything. And so do you see what, what Paul is doing here now? Paul is saying that the opposite of idolatry is for the Christian to reclaim the rightful worship of God in and through the creation, submitting it to the lordship of Jesus. So rather than making an idol out of the morning coffee, you can drink that coffee to the glory of God. God, you are my only hope in life and death. Thank you for this beautiful hot cup of coffee. And praise be to you. You can worship God rather than making an idol out of, of sex and sexuality. He, he's saying that when submitted to the lordship of Jesus in the context of covenant marriage between man and woman, that then sex no longer has to be an idol, but it can be worship to the glory of God. You can enjoy sports for the glory of God rather than making sports an idol, being the thing that you give yourself over to, time, money, and affection. You can participate in democracy for the glory of God with your heart surrendered to Jesus as Lord rather than making an idol out of politics on and on. Do you see the point that he's making? Your life matters. Every moment of every day matters to Jesus Christ. He's put dignity and purpose into it. But again, it requires intentionality. It requires that we get off of autopilot. We let Jesus take the wheel, literally. Thank you, Carrie Underwood, for that. So how do we live in a pagan world? How do we navigate these gray areas that we find ourselves in? How do we stay in the world but not become of the world? Well, Paul says this is the grid. We, we filter everything, all of these questions and these gray areas, these hot spots through this grid. The glory of God in all things, the good of neighbor in all things. And guess what? It still takes wisdom. It still takes discernment. It still takes the help of the Holy Spirit. And so I love what Paul does in this text. He gives this grid, but then he coaches the Corinthians through it. He actually gives them some practical advice, coaching them. So here's what it looks like as it relates to living in a pagan world, trying to figure out how to navigate eating and drinking, uh, and not in a way that leads you into idolatry. He applies it in verse 25 through 29. And so I want to walk through these verses where Paul's going to apply this grid. He's going to coach the Corinthians through it. And I want to see what we can glean from it for the gray areas in our life. And I also want to just ask you to let these verses stir your imagination 
for those gray areas in your life where you're, you're trying to figure out how do I live faithfully to Jesus in this situation? Look what he says in verse 25 through 27. So he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting Psalm 24 here. He says, go shopping in the meat market and, and buy the meat and eat it. Enjoy it. This, Psalm 24 would have been something that, uh, that would have been common to pray before a meal, uh, declaring, the earth is yours, God. Everything in it is yours. This meat belongs to you. You made it. We're going to eat it to the glory of God. Verse 27, he says, and if an unbeliever invites you to dinner, a non-Christian, a pagan, invites you to dinner, and you're sitting in their house, which would have been kind of an open-air type of home in first century Corinth, enjoy the food, enjoy the meat that they bring to you. Don't worry about what other people might be thinking as they walk by and see you sitting with a pagan, eating possibly pagan meat. Eat the meat, he says. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, you're disposed to go. If your conscience allows you to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. What is Paul doing here? Well, he's making it clear that he doesn't want them to fall into the ditch of legalism. As one commentator says that I thought was really helpful, Christ has not called the Corinthians to become meat inspectors, but ambassadors of the gospel. In other words, what has Paul been saying? Should they stay out of the temple festivals? Should they not go into the banquet halls of the temples and flirt with idolatry? Yes, they need to stay away from that. But do they need to become like the odd for God crowd in the rest of life? Like, does he want them going up to the meat market stand and, and you know, asking for a resume on every piece of meat, making sure that, they, you know, that they're keeping uh, holy and perfect ways? No, he's saying no. He's pointing them to their Christian liberty. He says, you're free in Christ. Don't worry about the optics of other people. You will not catch sin from sinners, and you will not catch sin from their food. Christ Jesus has set you free from sin and law. Eat the food. <laughs> Enjoy fellowship. Love God. Love your neighbor. There are times in our life where this is good and right. What does this look like for us? Well, I think maybe the, the alcohol thing is a good comp. There are many others. It's not a perfect comparison, but I think it's a good comp. Maybe this will help you understand how we apply this grid to our life. Uh, if your conscience allows you to drink alcohol, and some of you it doesn't, and that's good. But if your conscience allows you to drink alcohol, which, by the way, the Bible's very clear, we ought not be drunk, ever. Like even buzz, like flirting. That the Bible says we should be full of the Holy Spirit. But if your conscience allows you to enjoy a glass of wine, then buy the bottle of wine at HEB. Put the six-pack in your cart without worried hiding it under toilet paper and stuff. Worried that the legalists are going to see you. Don't worry about the optics, he says. Enjoy your freedoms and your liberty. Drink to the glory of God. If a non-believer invites you over for dinner and they, you know, have a glass of wine and enjoy fellowship. Enjoy fellowship with them. Love your neighbor. Get to know them. Glorify God as you share time together. He's saying there are times for this. And even just me giving that example, like the legalists are now uncomfortable. They're like, I don't know about that. But look what he says in verse 28. He's going to make the other people uncomfortable too. He's going to make the licentious people, the rule benders, uncomfortable. Verse 28, he gives another example. But if someone says to you, this has been offer, offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Do not mean your conscience, but his. 
For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Don't you hear the licentious person arguing back? Why should I give up my freedom for the sake of someone else? I'm free in Christ. Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, I thank God for this food. Why does it even matter? Why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. Paul gives a parallel scenario to show that there are also different times when we need to apply this grid and we might come out with a different answer. You're invited to a meal, he says. The neighbor host comes out and makes it clear that this food is from, uh, from a temple. This food is going to bring us wellness in the name of the Greek gods. Or we eat tonight in the name of Aphrodite, who will bless us and our families with fertility. What does Paul say in this situation? What do you do? Abstain. He says, you don't eat in this situation. And the obvious question here is why? Like, just be consistent, Paul. Am I free in my conscience? Can I eat it for the glory of God? What if I give thanks? I don't want to offend my neighbor. You just said that we ought not try to create an offense. Just be consistent. So what is Paul doing here? Paul says, well, it's not about your conscience. Remember, we do all things for the sake of others. It's not about your conscience. It's about their conscience, those who don't know Christ. What does he mean? What is Paul getting at? You see, I think Paul certainly wants us as Christians to be in the lives of non-believers. Okay? He wants us as Christians to be, in, to, to, to be friends with those who don't know Christ. This is how the gospel spreads. He wants us to be in the life of non-believers. But there is also a, another thing that we've got to be mindful of. As we befriend those who don't know Christ, fellowship with those, whether it's in the workplace or in the neighborhood or through school activities, as we fellowship with them, we ought to also be distinct. There's an author that I love, Rebecca Pipert, and she talks about how uh, we ought to be sent in love to make friends with non-Christians, but we ought to always be like a small pebble in their shoe. What's the difference between a rock in your shoe and a pebble in your shoe? There's a rock in your shoe, you're immediately going to get it out and chunk it, right? How many of you have walked around for miles with a tiny pebble in your shoe? <laughs> yeah. And, she, and I think this is what Paul is getting at here. This is what she says. We ought to be distinct. You know, after a while of walking with that pebble in your shoe, eventually there's going to come the time where you stop to investigate what's going on in my shoe. What is that? Something's different. Something's, something's not quite the same. And so he's telling us here that there should become a time where we stand out peculiarly for Christ as we live in a non-believing world. Consider his example. The food comes around. It's clear that this, this social setting is now in the name of idols and idolatry. So what do you do? As the food comes around, Paul says, say, no thanks. You know I love you, but I'm going to pass on this meal. As you know, I don't worship the gods and goddesses of Corinth anymore. I put my faith in Jesus, the Messiah. I look to him for wellness. I look to him for prosperity. I look to him. He is my hope in life and death. I don't look to these other things anymore. In this situation, Paul says, lay down your rights in order to stand out in peculiar witness for Christ. And I think that Paul is helpful here, coaching us through these situations. Again, the glory of God and the good of neighbor. Not blending in with the world, but also not being so separated and segmented from the world that God cannot use us in mission. 
we can apply this to the many gray areas in our life where glorifying God and loving neighbor looks like speaking up and talking about the hope that we have in Christ. If, if, if there are many non-believers in your life that don't even know you're a Christian, that's probably not okay. Like there are many opportunities where we ought to be speaking up and talking about the hope that we have in Christ. If you don't have any non-Christian friends in your life, that's probably not okay. We ought to be seeking to build bridges and to love our neighbors so that many could come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that we have come to. Paul says there are going to be times where you need to say no, not as an act of boycott, but as an act of faithful witness and worship. You see, here's what I think Paul has been building towards since chapter 8, verse 1. I think he wants us to truly consider what story is our life telling? What story is your life telling? Whose story is your life telling? And I think Paul wants us to see that it is the everyday actions and interactions. It is often how we interact in these gray areas that are writing the script. What story is your life telling? Whose story is your life telling? He's reminding us that our, our lives are to tell the gospel story, each of us, in unique ways in everyday life. I think Paul wants us to pay attention to our lives, to get off of autopilot, to be intentional, to ask throughout our everyday life, how does my presence here or there tell the gospel story? How do my words, my use of food and drink, do they tell the gospel story? What about my social media? What story is my social media telling? Who is it promoting? Is it building up or is it tearing down? What about my use of my time, my weekends? What story is it telling? What about my use of money? What story is it telling? And I love how Paul closes this entire section with chapter 11, verse 1. Paul closes with a reminder to us that Jesus Christ is our story. Jesus Christ is our story. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul has been working on from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way now. So he's saying, think about how you live. Look at how I've lived. I'm not trying to make you like me, a disciple of me. I'm trying to show you and coach you and model for you the life of Christ that is available to you. This is the invitation here. Paul says, lean in to Christ. Desire to be more like Christ at all times and in all things. I just want to ask you as we close this morning, do you desire that this morning? Is that the desire of your heart? I want to be more like Christ at all times and in all things. I'll never be perfect. I will always need grace, but I want to be more like Christ this afternoon than I was yesterday. I want to be more like Christ in the workplace. I want to be more like Christ in the neighborhood. I want to be more like Christ as a parent, as a grandparent. I want to be more like Christ as a single man or woman. You see, this is invitation to desire to be more like Christ. And you know how we do that? We consider him. We consider his great grace. We consider his great mercy given to us. We consider him who sought not his own good, but sought our good. We consider his great commitment to us. 
the fact that his spirit is within you, the fact that he's given you his word, he's given you his church, he's given you purpose in every moment of every day. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Tell the gospel story with your life. What a story it is. What a story that's ours. Let's pray. Father, as we have heard your word this morning, that is our prayer. We want to be more like you. Would you help us? Thank you for the spaces and places in which you've placed each person in this room that calls you Savior and Lord. Thank you for the neighborhoods that are represented, the vocations that are represented. Thank you for the families. Thank you for the resources, the interest and the hobbies, the time and the talents and the, and the, and the, the possessions that are here in this room. And we pray simply, Holy Spirit, with your help, would you help us to be a people collectively, individually and collectively, that steward all that we have, all of our time, all of our actions, all of our interactions for you, for your glory, that we tell your story, help us to be your faithful people. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are with us, that you are near to us, that your mercy and your grace is available to us today. As we go to your table now, we pray that you would meet us and that you would nourish us with your grace. As we enter into a time of response, we pray that you would be high and lifted up, that you would be exalted, and that your presence and your spirit would be near to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.